Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. I think this really is the meditation generation, and we just have to build in more tools and more availability for young people to access these things to counter some of the stuff of the smartphones. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, kids. So I have a few announcements, and then I'm going to tell you a little story, and then uh, we're going to do our guest for this week, who is awesome. Uh, she really is awesome and said a lot of things that uh, are very relevant to what's happening in the in the news these days with Time's Up and Me Too. Uh, and she also has a lot to say about meditation and, and, um, and how it could be useful for young people who are dealing with the, what may be described as an epidemic of anxiety. So we'll get to Yael in a moment. But uh, just a, a few announcements. Um, I've got a few events I'm going to be doing uh, in New York City coming up in case you want to come um one event is on thursday the 15th of february at 6 30 at the asia society which is on uh, park avenue in new york city um i'm going to be doing a live podcast actually with dr thubton jinpa who is a previous guest on this podcast he's um one of the i guess the thing he's most known for is he's uh, been the principal english translator for a guy um, you may have heard of by the name of the Dalai Lama, um, and uh, he's just a an incredible guy. He uh, Jinpa, that is, is an incredible guy, and he also teaches uh, compassion meditation uh, with Stanford University. So, a lot to talk to him about. I'm also going to do something at the Mindful Meditation Studio in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. That's MNDFL Mindful, um, which is uh, owned or co-owned by uh, former podcast guest Lodro Rinsler. So Lodro and I are going to do a thing at Mindful in Williamsburg uh, on February 22nd at 7.30. If you want to get tickets for that, uh, you can check out mindfulmeditation.com, M-N-D-F-L meditation.com. Oh, by the way, asiasociety.org is where you go to find out about the Asia Society event. Um, And then the final event, uh, and there are others actually that I'll tell you about later, um, at a later date. The final event to tell you about this day, though, is something at ABC Home on February 21st. I'm going to be with um, my friend and another former podcast guest, Daniel Goldman, who co-authored the excellent book in the last 12 months, uh, Altered Traits, with uh, Richie Davidson. Um, And that's at ABC Home, which is at 888 Broadway, and that's at seven o'clock. And you can, I saw a listing for that in, on Eventbrite. So I think if you do a search there, you should be able to find it. The, the other announcement I want to make is that we've got a new audio course going up on the 10% Happier app. It's on pain, um, physical pain. You know, one, one of the more counterintuitive uses of meditation is to help us cope with pain. And, you know, that's not to say that pain relief of other varieties, you know, medical pain relief is not of, of no good. But meditation is a kind of a different way to attack it. And uh, Sharon Salzberg, who has been on this podcast many times, more than anybody actually, um, is is doing this audio course on the 10% Happier app. And I think it's really worth checking out. And it doesn't mean you have to have chronic pain to, to find this of use. Um, I think um, we all suffer, especially if you do any meditation of any length, you notice that the body can sometimes be uh, – can turn into uh, – what my meditation teacher Joseph Goldstein talks about as uh, twisted steel. So um, check it out. Um, all right, story. I uh, just learned a ton about podcasting because I went to L.A. with my wife 
she came along with me because I had I was I was appearing on eight different podcasts as part of my orgy of self promotion around this new book I wrote uh, called uh, Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, and I was doing I went on all these other podcasts, and there there were. I learned so much about the podcast world. These people are all just really nice. So I wanted to tell you about the podcasts I was on in case you want to go check them out. Either You don't have to listen to the interview with me. You might want to just check out these other podcasts because we're always looking for new podcasts to enjoy. Um, and also, along the way, I, I, got, I had lots of like classic L.A. experiences. So let's see. What did I do? Uh, so um, the first one we did was called Kick-Ass News, um, which is one of the top podcasts in the world. Really interesting guy who hosts it, and he's really nice and very, very skeptical about meditation, and he gets great guests. So his name is Ben Mathis. Um, I, I recommend you check him out. And it's very interesting, but, you know, one of the top podcasts in the world, and he does it out of um, just a completely nondescript building in Pasadena, uh, which is outside of L.A., um, and you would think that he would be, you know, out of some gleaming global headquarters, but nope. Uh, this the really sort of, like I said, nondescript building in Pasadena with green carpeting. Um, then we went uh, to perhaps my favorite podcast of all time with RuPaul, who is an amazing individual. He's got a podcast called What's the T T E E, which I think is is uh, another word for gossip. Anyway, that just exposes my ignorance about the drag world. But I I knew I had met RuPaul because I did a story on him for Nightline, and then also he was on this podcast. And I absolutely fell in love with him. He's he's just so funny, and he insisted that my wife sit next to me for the whole – my wife, Bianca, who's also been on this podcast. Um, and so we were laughing hysterically the whole time because he's just ridiculously funny. So check out his podcast. <laughs> After it was over, he actually pulled out his phone, and he read – he read to us a list of dirty versions of popular uh, plays, including Shakespeare plays and movies, dirty versions that he had made up as part of a dirty charades game. And we were just buckled the whole time. Uh, but he has lots of other funny things to say and to sing. Uh, and so check out uh, check out his podcast. Then we went. This is all happening on Monday uh, on a Monday. Uh, we're just ubering around or lifting around uh, la and then we um spent some time with rich roll who's also been on this podcast he's a vegan ultra marathoner and it was super fun to hang with him i i love him and then at i did four podcasts on this day the fourth one i did is a guy who's gonna be on this podcast soon uh his name is paul gilmartin he hosts a show called the mental illness happy hour which is kind of a tongue-in-cheek he's a former comedian but he suffered from serious mental illness, depression, and anxiety, among others, I believe. Uh, and he has this show where he just really talks about it in an open and often very funny way. And I think he's doing a lot to destigmatize uh, mental illness. So it was cool to meet him. So that was that was my Monday of the trip. And then on Tuesday, we spent some time with the minimalists, who are great guys and uh, have also been on this podcast. Uh, and um, actually, before I did The Minimalist, we did, I sat down and did a podcast called The Ground Up Podcast with uh, Matt Diavolo, who directed the Minimalism documentary, which uh, is on, available on Netflix. And uh, so I talked to him. His podcast is all about how uh, creative people get their start. And then we did an hour with uh, the mil minimalists themselves. And then after that, uh, one of the minimalists um, convinced me, he could not convince my wife, to do cryotherapy, which is where you get in this tiny little coffin-like thing and uh, you, you're standing and they pump in 
incredibly cold air vapors. I don't know. I'm probably mangling what it is, but it's ridiculously cold. You're wearing gloves and uh, earmuffs and socks to protect your extremities and underwear. And it's supposed to have some sort of therapeutic benefit. I'm not sure if it actually does, but uh, it was like classic L.A. experience where you're just standing in this room. You get to pick the music. So I, I picked actually my this band that I love always. If you want to check them out, by the way, their name is spelled A-L-V-V-A-Y-S. But they're pronounced always, I believe. And my son and I listen to their record in the bath every night. So I played that in the, the little cryotherapy chamber and um, danced around while this ridiculous cold air jumped in. All I can tell you is that I felt great when it was over, but I think I felt great because it was over. It was like that. Ever heard that joke about the guy who's banging his head up against the wall and somebody says, why are you doing that? And he says, because it feels so good when I stop. Um, anyway, it was a unique experience. And then uh, that night, um, Jeff Warren, my co-author on the new book, and I, we we did an event in Pasadena together, which was amazing with all, all these folks who came out. And then... Uh, the final podcast we did was the next day with Joe Rogan, who's maybe the most popular podcaster on earth in the universe. And I had been texting with him the day before to, to you know, just make sure I had the right time and location and everything. And he starts telling me on text that he has an isolation tank in his studio, in his podcast studio. He's got this gigantic, like 20,000 square foot setup with a, a workout area where people you can train for mixed martial arts. He's got this video game with an archery thing, like a full-on, this is a crazy setup he's got. And he's got his little radio podcast studio in there. But he also has an isolation tank, which is, I if you don't know anything about this, it, you know it's a, a place, it's filled with salt water. You get in there, you float, and you can't see anything, there's, and you can't hear anything. So you, all of your senses are gone, and you're floating in this water, and and it's you're like disembodied. And um, <laughs> it was uh, another classic. I think there's a little bit more science to suggest that this this is uh, good for you than um, than the cryotherapy. I could be wrong about that, but that that was my, my cursory read indicated. And um, I told when when Joe said he had an isolation tank and did I want to get in? And I said no. And then he called me a chicken and then I felt like I had to do it. So I did do it um, and I was terrified to do it. And usually you go in there for two hours. He was kind on me and only put me in there for an hour. And you float in this water. And I had a moment of being terrified, totally terrified and like pushing open the door because I wanted to just make sure I knew where the door was and, and that I could get out of there. And then I kind of eased into it, and I have to say, there's, it's, um, I can see what there's something to it. Um, when you take away all the other stimuli, you're, you're, you are transported uh, mentally and psychologically in some interesting ways. And there are all sorts of fascinating experiences that people have in these tanks. And I'm actually, uh, I want to do more research about, you know, what the science says around it. But I'm intrigued and may try it again. But anyway, in sum, uh, here's what I learned just from my little whirlwind trip around L.A. A, it's fun to spend time with my wife. That was fun. Uh, B, L.A. is actually – I've always been kind of down on L.A., but I, I really like L.A., actually. C, the podcast world is filled with, as I said at the top, really cool people. And um, as you as you heard, a lot of these people have been on my podcast, and there's a lot of mutual support. Oh, by the way, I left one of the podcasts out. Um, these two – Great young women uh, who have a podcast called That's So Retrograde. 
They're really funny and very smart, and they talk about some stuff that goes way beyond the bounds of what we would talk about here because it may be uh, described as woo-woo. But they also talk about stuff that I think you'd find very interesting and useful as well. And as I said, they're very funny, so we spend time with them. But that all just goes to reinforce my point that there's this kind of mutual uh, support among podcasters as opposed to uh, sharp-elbowed competition and and um, and of all the podcasts – that I just listed. I think there's a lot there for you to go check out, um, although you should be listening to this one first, always. Okay, so this week's uh, episode, is, the interviewee is Yael Shai, who, as I mentioned at the beginning, um, is phenomenal. She is, her day job is, she's the founder and director of the uh, Mindful NYU, uh, which is the largest campus-wide meditation initiative in the country. She's also the senior director of the Center for Global Spiritual Life at New York University. And she travels all over the world talking about meditation. And, you know, we're at a time where young people are really anxious. Anxiety has been on the rise. Um, They're also, I I mean, you have to wonder whether um, the proliferation of mobile phones and social media plays into that. Um, I believe it it, it almost certainly does. And many of my listeners may be young and dealing with this, or you may have children who are dealing with this. Um, uh, And Yale has a lot to say that is of use. And if you are neither of those camps, she's still an advanced practitioner with a lot to say that I think can be informative. Um, And I didn't see this coming, but we talked about sexual assault on campus, and and, and she had some really interesting thoughts about how meditation and mindfulness can play a constructive role in what is a really important cultural moment. So without further yammering from me, here she is, Yael Shai. Great to have you here. I think there's a lot of things to talk about with you, especially right now. Yeah. Um, Let me just open with the, the familiar question, which is how did you come to meditation? Uh, I came to meditation like a lot of people from a lot of suffering. Um, I was in college and I was... Um, Where'd you go to college? NYU, where okay. I oh, yeah. teach now. Yeah, I went there, you know, I didn't go there. For, uh, I went there for one semester to NYU film school, which was just long enough for me to realize that I suck at making movies. Um, oh. but, but I have fond memories. Do you? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I didn't. I I liked my classes, but I I was I had a really hard time there. Yeah, I just felt like I was just plunked in the middle of the city without a lot of money, and everybody around me had a ton of money. Yeah, yeah. um, Where are you from? I'm originally from LA, but then we moved around a bit. So then New Jersey, Long Island, and then I ended up at NYU. And so you were you academically you were satisfied, but socially, psychologically struggling. Oh, yeah. It was also during 9-11, and my uh, dorm room was about, like, 15 minutes from the World Trade Center. All my friends got evacuated. We saw, you know, we saw everything, and uh, I had a lot of PTSD from that. And then just that aside, I was um, um, lonely all the time, and I was my parents had gotten divorced this mm. one year. My uh, uh, my boyfriend broke up with me, and I felt like I was like not just stressed. I felt like I was existentially anxious. Mm. Like I didn't understand what the point of being alive was. It mm. felt like all of our the president and the leadership were kind of marching us to war, and I was terrified of that. And you know, just being like this: uh, what is going on? Who's in charge? Nobody's in charge. It kind of then directly dovetailed into like nobody's in charge of the world. Is God real? Um, so I was melting down in many, many ways. I was having like two, three panic attacks a week. Wow. And in what context? 
just life. random. Yeah, they were mostly triggered by um, crowds, I think, yeah. which was like the nine eleven stuff. But um, but I think it it just went very deep. I was always an anxious person growing up, and so I think it just kind of hit a high point at, in college. And there was uh, there was a moment where I went to a a stress reduction meeting at the, our health center because I didn't know what else to do. And they sat everyone in a circle and were, you know, telling people, you should, um, you know, take bubble baths or go for a walks if you're stressed about homework. I know homework can be very stressful this time of year. Mm-hmm. And I left just being like, are you kidding me? Like homework is the least. I'm stressed about existence <laughs> and what my place is in existence. And so I just felt completely without any tools. Um, and it, it happened that my mother, who is not a meditator, she's a rabbi and conservative rabbi and fairly conservative on her own. And um, the, there's a pretty rich history of Jewish meditation. Yes, there is. And so actually she gave me this flyer for a Jewish meditation retreat, even though she you know, would never have gone. But she thought like what maybe it could help me. I went on it, and basically my my life was changed. It was really, really transformative. I said Jewish meditation like I know what I'm talking about, but I don't. <laughs> so what is, Jew- what is Jewish meditation? So the, there's many kinds of Jewish meditation, and there's a whole realm that I don't go near or touch, not because I think it's bad. It just doesn't exactly appeal to me around mysticism and the Kabbalah and things of that kind. Yeah. Numerology, right? Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. It goes it goes very deep and old, but um, extremely dense. You're supposed to be like 40 before you even start okay. delving into that. I could do um, it. You could. <laughs> Except I'm bad at math, but I'm, uh, I've, I meet the age requirements. You do, and you're all supposed to be a, only a man, but you know. Okay, you I got that, that one too. <laughs> right, um, but my the, the kind that I practiced or that I you know practiced for years and still teach is more. Um, a lot of the, t- the the teachers themselves are rabbis or they're very l- learned in the tradition, but they're actually pulling quite a lot from Buddhism and from some of the other Dharmic traditions and finding both where like in Judaism, there is already quite a lot of mindfulness, present focus practices, including like the Sabbath, which is pretty much pure mindfulness. Um, well, how so? Because people who observe the Sabbath are uh, the whole idea of the Sabbath is you, you don't create anything new. You don't spend money. You don't kind of participate in this economic machine. It's basically supposed to be a meditation retreat where all you are is with the world as it is um, and, and being in the world as it is. You know, you can study and you can spend time with family, but it's not supposed to be a time of creating new things. No, but you could spend that time fighting with your family, which would be not super mindful. Which happens yeah. quite a lot. But I think the very idea of the Sabbath is pretty is pretty radical. It's a counter-cultural, anti-capitalist idea that is also, I think, very mindful-friendly. Uh, yeah. So there's so many examples of that. Some of the prayers in the heart of the prayer service that we repeat every single day have those pieces to them that are all about the oneness of all things, that are about um, just who who we really are at, at the core. And so that's the kind of Jewish meditation that I was learning on these retreats and that now I teach is the, the mindfulness within Judaism and then the connections with Buddhism, because I think some in some ways Buddhism has things to offer that Judaism doesn't the same way that Judaism has things to offer that Buddhism doesn't. So they're not like the same. They just complement each other really well. But just out of curiosity, can you get super 
or somewhat more granular about like when you go to a Jewish meditation retreat, what do they have you do with your mind? What yes. is the step by step on that? So that is extremely. Is very it's very similar to I'm told I haven't sat any Vipassana retreats but I've sat a lot of Zen retreats and I'm told it's very very similar to Vipassana retreats. Try me, okay. I, I do those. I'm going on one soon. All right. Yes, oh. another one. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. So basically, it's from the moment you wake up till the moment you go to bed, you're kind of in a silent container. Rather than um, chanting, you do a Jewish prayer or chant first thing in the morning, and then you sit, walk, sit, walk, basically all day. You eat in silence. But when you're sitting, what are you doing? Um, there's instructions. So sometimes you sit and, sit and we'll just watch your breath, and sometimes you sit and uh, there's – they all studied in Vipassana traditions. Because oh, this, so this sounds like a Vipassana retreat, yeah. That's yeah. where they learned it from. Okay. But, oh, so um, it's kind of – a Vipassana retreat with a Jewish overlay. Exactly. Okay. And then the talks, they call them Torah talks, but they're Dharma talks. Okay. And um, and then you have one of those every evening. But the thing that changes or that's like a little bit different is that over Shabbat, you have a little bit of a Torah reading and an incorporation of the Shabbat prayers, the Sabbath prayers. And that's a little bit, I'm imagining, different than a, a Vipassana retreat. Yeah. Otherwise, I think they're really similar. So you were like 18, 19, 20 when you started doing this? I was 19. 19. And I was probably the youngest person on the retreat by 45 years or so. <laughs> I mean, I was really the only young person there at that time. Things have changed now. Yeah. Um, but I, I got there and I was like, what am I doing here? And I thought it was going to be, I never meditated before. I just thought it was going to be like a, a spa and that I, you know, maybe they would have massages or like jacuzzis. And of course, it's nothing yeah. like a spa. And so I had several breakdowns on the retreat itself. But um, but at some point I met with the teacher and it and he, he kind of just really um, helped me to shine a light on what was causing all that fear and all of that panic. And once I did that and I realized it was so much about a fear of death, the fear of being invisible, which is what I was carrying around for so many years. Um, that's what really started to, to kind of uh, transform the roots of the anxiety that I was feeling and that I thought I would never stop feeling. And did you have you been doing it ever since? Or were there breaks? I didn't have a daily practice at first. It took me a long time to have like a regular practice. I would just go on retreats every year, and that was my practice. And then uh, it took some time to build up to have it be a real part of my everyday life. But uh, but pretty much since then, I haven't stopped completely, and that's now like 16, 17 years. Wow. Yeah. And so how did that lead you to your current employment? Yes, kind of windy, because I went to law school, and uh, I was interested in criminal justice reform, and that was my main work that I was doing. Um, but I never stopped meditating and I never stopped being really interested in it. And I would just go on longer and longer retreats. And uh, at some point I thought, you know, I was working at NYU at a policy center and I thought, you know, I've, I've loved this work, but I'm ready to take it into a more spiritual direction to make that be more of my full life. And I was about to leave and my boss at the time was like, well, actually, there's a new building opening at NYU dedicated entirely to spiritual life. What do you think about maybe moving over there? And so I said, like, that would it would be my dream job. I had already started a meditation group at NYU that was growing and growing with a bunch of students. 
And so I applied and got the job, and then I became the co-director of this Spiritual Life Center. We moved over the meditation program, and uh, and it just grew and grew and grew. And it's now, we believe, the largest um, mindfulness program of any university in the country. Wow. We have meditations every night of the week. We have an LGBTQ meditation, a people of color meditation. We have retreats and programs. You've come, and yeah. we've had a lot of great guests, workshops, and so... It's just um, like the greatest uh, honor and pleasure of my life. What about you, though? Are you, has, are you still, do you still have anxiety? Does it go away after 16, 17 years of meditation? Yeah, uh, definitely still have anxiety, but it so doesn't control my life anymore. Um, like I say, I say in my book that there's this one moment I remember I had to go to a graduate student mixer to talk about the meditation program, maybe like seven years ago. And I had a bunch of like postcards with me and I was about to kind of open the door and I just stopped for a minute and I thought this situation in the past, the social anxiety of it would have like floored me. I wouldn't have been able to go in like I would have had hyperventilating and just gone, gone home and hid under my covers. And it's amazing those moments when you realize, you know, I had a little nervousness in my stomach and I went and just that kind of a, that's sort of how I live with anxiety. Now, I still feel it for sure, but it doesn't most of the time run my life. So it's it's like, at least for me, I still have the same, people ask me this, I was doing, I was being interviewed earlier today, and the woman was interviewing me, said, do you still get anxious? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I still have tendencies towards anxiety and depression, but I, I just don't go as far down the rabbit hole as I used to. I mean, I'm, it still comes up, but yes. I'm a little bit better at seeing it and letting it pass. Some, you know, sometimes I, I, it owns me, but it's for shorter periods of time. Exactly. And the, the, the deeper the thing, you know, the, the harder it is to pull myself out, at least for me, like the deeper the root in childhood or, yeah, you know, whatever yeah. it is. But um, but it has been so useful to have these practices just to eventually climb your way out of. So tell me tell me about the book. Yeah, so I about three years ago I started writing it, and it's a mix of a memoir. It's called What Now: Meditation for Your Twenties and Beyond. It's a mix of memoir and instruction. Tell, tell uh, me about the title. What now? Yeah, uh, I did not come up with it. I wish I did. I think it's cool. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> uh, I came up with stuff that they all re- that they rejected much faster, but uh, but I think that it really works because it works on the level of like every moment in meditation is just coming back to the now. Yes, yes. Um, but also the time in your twenties and thirties is like a time of n- almost unending, like. Okay, what now? What yes. am I supposed to be doing now? What am I supposed to be doing in my life? Am I ever going to meet anyone? Am I lovable? Um, just, you know, what am I supposed to be doing in this world? And that's definitely how I felt. So I think that the title has worked really well. With the book. I had one of my bleakest, bleakest depressions right upon graduation from college. I went through some of the stuff that you described. You know, I think my freshman year I had a lot of loneliness, homesickness, not knowing my place and at where where I was going to school, but when I graduated and I was looking down the barrel at the rest of my life, I just melted down. Yeah. Couldn't deal. Yeah, that's. I think that's 
really, really common. I have that. I know most of my students have that. And they have it kind of leading up to graduation. Yeah. You can see the panic on their yeah. faces with like the few exceptions that go like right to law school or something. But I, I actually was too stupid to have it leading up to graduation. It was like right at graduation. I was like, oh, wait, what? What now? Right? <laughs> you I just mean, hadn't, hadn't really thought no, about it. No, because I'm a dummy. I just didn't think about <laughs> it. And then I, I just was lost. Yeah. Completely lost. Yeah. So, so, so talk, let, let's talk about because I, I think we do have some listeners um, in that age cohort and also people who are parents of people in that age cohort. What? Um, how, how does meditation help with – let's just – Let's just tick down the list of things that people are dealing with, social anxiety, technology addiction, uh, sexual assault and harassment, um, loneliness, homesickness, uh, quarter-life crisis. How does it help with these things? Yeah. I think if you would have kind of told me that meditation would um, – when I was in my 20s, that, that like one of the perks of meditation is like it, it actually helps you to know and accept yourself better, you know, or, or, or love yourself more, um, I probably would have been like, it's, I, I love myself enough. I have um, good self-esteem. I'm, um, you know, a very healthy person is what I thought. Um, and I think what, what was really revelatory for me, because I was always told meditation is, is nice to help you calm down, which, sure. But I think where, what really those people, people that practice more and more and deeper and deeper is, and you write about this really beautifully in your book about like it helps you to see the the words in your head, the stories you've been told, the um, the influence of your parents. Which when you hit about college age and beyond, it's 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 very hard to see all the programming that you walk in with and the ways that we're so mean to ourselves. And it took me to till my first meditation retreat where I was, you know, sitting there and then these these narratives would come through like every time I shifted, like you're ruining everybody else's meditation, oh, yeah. you know. I've had that. Yeah, just really cruel things like you're such a loser, you know, you nobody will ever love you. And I was and it takes a lot of just being there and really hearing it to be like, wait, is that true? Where did I learn that? What is that doing for me? Why is that um why is that, how is that limiting me and causing me suffering in the wider world? And so I think for this age group in particular, just starting to open up to what those narratives will be then, prov- you know, provides a path to healing from that and to figuring out how to move forward um, into a place without such um, limiting beliefs about ourselves. Yeah. And that affects loneliness and relationships and that affects job because when you're still having the voices of the, your parents or other people in your head or society in your head, it's really hard to see what's inside you, what's the gift you bring to the world and what, uh, what your own unique voice is. How's the buy-in uh, on campus? Because are, are you just – I worry for you that you might be just getting the, the folks who – would normally be interested in susceptible to meditation, but you might not be getting the, more, the tougher nuts to crack. Um, or is is the the stigma that might have existed when, say, I was in college gone? It's definitely I I find it getting less and less every year. Um, I think we're, we're, our numbers are just every year growing and growing and growing, and the less. You know, the less people you would expect. Like when I first started the meditation program, there was a lot of students that. Uh, you know, wanted to be wanted to be named, renamed themselves Rain, or you know, very 
hippie-ish, lovely people, but were that into Pilates and yoga and just a very different, um, t- like the, the typical who you would expect to, yes. to be showing up. Yeah. These days, I mean, we have a, at NYU, we have a mindfulness and business program, and we have very um, stressed people, and we have people who look every which way. And what's interesting is that because our center is um, – Situated inside a spiritual, our spiritual life center, we have people of every, very religious people of every different religion that are coming just to kind of access their, their own self and their heart and their breath. And so it's, um, it's a real mix of people. I'm sure there are people that we're still not accessing because I tend to really like these students and I, I'm like, do I just get the best students? Maybe, maybe they're the ones that are attracted to our center. But, um, but I think it's growing and changing, just like in society, the, the who's coming to things is growing and changing. I went back to my alma mater, Colby College in Maine, a couple of years ago to give a talk. And mm-hmm. I was really surprised. First of all, the room was filled. I learned later that people who came got PE credit or something like that. So that's probably <laughs> why the room was filled. But at the end uh, of the talk, um, this like buff dude got up and said, I'm the president of the Colby Mindfulness Club. We meet every week in the chapel. Come. And I was like, really? You? I mean, it was amazing. So, I mean, I do think that especially for younger people, and I'll also just say, share one other thing, is that that when I, when I give talks at high schools or colleges, they're the most receptive audiences. So there's something about young people today, I think maybe they're uniquely stressed or maybe that just the stigma isn't there for them the way it was for me, that they seem to get it. Yes. I think that's why I love working with them, too, because when you and I notice it when I work to go talk to adult audiences or do workshops with adult audiences and you're kind of fighting yeah, people fighting. Yeah. and you just don't fight people that much with college age students. They're so open. It doesn't mean they don't have like their critical minds and they're really working on their critical minds, but they are just kind of like, yeah, I don't know if it's generational or if it's just the developmental stage they're at because... I wouldn't have been open when I was in college, though. No, no so I wonder whether it's inherently open-mindedness or if it's if it's the fact that they just didn't grow up with the same sort of cultural baggage that we did or if it's because now there's so much stress being younger with technology and all sorts of other stressors. Social that media. is definitely true. I think that that they're coming because the need is greater than ever before and the amount of addictions to the phone and to social media and also just trying to figure out who you are when you're you're constantly being told to brand yourself and to be on social media almost like professionally like it's a good idea really? for them. Yeah. Even in college. Yeah, they're told, uh, at least at NYU, maybe because it's such a city school, but I think it's more national than that, that that millennials and the under millennials that they're called Generation Z are being constantly told that it's your job, like your personhood is now a brand and you're selling yourself to future employers and to businesses and, you know, people. I have students that are like, you know, constantly checking their Instagram numbers to see where they're at or um, these extensive Snapchat networks. And I think they find it hard to figure out who's actually there Mm. behind the branding. And this is a practice that helps them to do that. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. 
There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. What about, I mean, the other thing that, but that social media, the other phenomenon, sort of mm, pernicious phenomenon that results from social media is FOMO, fear of missing out. Totally. You just you, know, you see all your friends at a party and you're not there, that kind of thing. You hear about that a lot? Yes, there's some of that. And then the other piece in from a Buddhist perspective that is like insidiously everywhere. And everyone feels this way, but I think because they're on their phone so much, they have this comparing mind yes. problem, yeah. um, which is that you're constantly comparing yourself to everyone else. And uh, someone's always better looking than you or perf- more perfectly filtered or your, their life looks better than you. And um, and it's brutal. And actually, some of the research studies that have come out about happiness related to Facebook have been saying that that's the piece, that it's both FOMO and it's this piece of um, comparisons that is what makes people depressed after spending extensive amount of time on social media. Yeah, because everybody's life is edited when you look at yeah, on social media. Exactly, exactly. And I, I only recently joined um, Instagram. I was on Facebook forever, but now all of my students are on Instagram and Snapchat, and so I joined it. And it, they, you can be beautiful there, and so that's what the that's what they do. You're just selling this beautiful vision of what your life is. Yeah. And all of your suffering is hidden away, and you feel like you're the only one in the world. Yeah, I just, I just, I just always on every Instagram post, I just put hashtag blessed. <laughs> no, I hate that. I hate that. Ridiculous. <laughs> I actually just don't even post much of myself. I always just post my kid. Yeah, and that's why I'm on Instagram. I want to see other people's kids. Um, I know, I or vacation really like pictures or whatever. Yeah. Um, I do think I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm not anti-social media, but I do think that the reversible camera has opened up a bottomless well of narcissism that I didn't know was there. Yeah. And 
and I always like I'm a little hesitant because I don't want to be the 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 person that's like oh kids these days and you know them and their their whatever because I'm sure people it's not that. just kids my it's friends I'm old my <laughs> friends are like I, like I don't understand that you're having dinner why are you posting a selfie <laughs> right. why are you talking to the person <laughs> right right it's just true it's like a it's just a fact of our lives and there are wonderful things about it and ways that we can reach people and connect to people sure. but um but there has to be some kind of check and I have a whole section in the book on this like how do we deal with this um, world of ours it's a part of our world that needs the practice more than anything so what do you say I say a couple of things one is to to watch um, the reach like watch the moments when you reach for the phone um, because right there in that moment if you can pause it before you go you can usually learn a lot. Like for me, oftentimes I'm feeling like a little lonely or a little um, unsure of myself. And I reach all the time. I mean, it's all the time. But to just tap into that moment and to see if you can actually feel what you're feeling before you go online. Uh, um, that's be- good. Yes, I think it's really been helpful for me. The second thing is this comparing mind issue. And what's what I've started practicing, which is also hard but helpful, is to every time you're lost in that sea of like comparison, somebody else is like more successful or better looking or has, you know, better life, to just pause for a minute and then really close your eyes and imagine just for a minute, what if you are completely okay and beautiful and lovable just as you are right now? And sometimes it's hard to even imagine that. So you have to just, um, almost like take a leap of the imagination. Just what if? How would you feel if you were? And it just cuts or breaks that like endless feeling of not being enough or not being good enough. I'm going to use that next time I see Anderson Cooper on TV. Aww. My man crush. <laughs> He's so good. He was on He was on this sh- podcast a couple of weeks ago. And yes. the only time my, my producers were on the other side of this class, we've had all sight, sorts of celebrities on the show. It's the only time... They've asked for pictures with a guest. <laughs> but no, I hear you. I mean, I get lost in comparing mind all the time. I mean, I'm kidding about Anderson. I mean, I, I compare myself to Anderson. I know there's really no comparison. But lot, lots of comparing mind, even for somebody like me who's been meditating for a while, it is such, I think you used the word before, sort of an insidious psychological phenomenon. Right, right. It's really powerful. And in meditation, in the meditation world, it's even funnier because I find myself comparing myself to other meditators, oh, yeah. other meditation course, teachers. Me I'm like, what is this? Like, what is that's not the point. And, you know, but it's hard. It's better to see it. Yes. That's that's the best thing is to just see it and realize it's human and forgive yourself for it, but not to put so much stock in it or be- try as much as you can to not believe it's real because, you know, we all know that we're completely interconnected. And, um, and so, you know, you and Anderson are really more connected then you are two separate beings that can compare against each other anyway well okay say, say more about that because that sounds to me and i'm going to be skeptical for a second mm-hmm. but i think not i'm not in this case i'm not just playing a skeptic i actually am skeptical mm-hmm. i don't i think what you're saying is inarguably true but it's hard for me to feel that 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 when i hear it it sounds like a bromide that i can't connect to yeah. in terms of it feeling real yeah even though i know you're right yeah so i there's a, a kind of a Buddhist idea, not an idea, like a central tenet called the three marks of existence. And one of those is impermanence. And another one that's also connected to this is that there's no separate self, that everybody, um, that every time the ego kind of crunches around itself and says, like, I'm separate, it's a delusion because 
we know and in, in scientifically we know that our minds and our ideas are constantly being influenced by everybody else at the same time, you know, by the world, by everyone who's ever lived and ever will live. And, and so um, for me, it's really clear, like it's a really clear line of suffering when I can feel, and I, I, I feel it with my whole body, this constriction of Yael needs attention or, you know, I must be better than this person or am I better than this? I am worse than this person. That constriction around this separate identity hurts. It just feels really bad. Even if in this one comparison I'm winning and I'm like, okay, I'm winning there, I'm winning there. It's a very unstable win. You know, it can be knocked off at any moment. So, um, so if, if instead I can really be like, try and open that clench around this idea that I'm a separate person. Of course, to some amount, we are separate people. But um, but on a deeper level, remembering that uh, we're all going to die, and we're all going to be part of the same soup again. And that uh, we even now, to some level, we're both waves in the ocean, and we're made of water. Um, to me, it's really relaxing. It is. It is. I agree with everything you're saying. But I don't know how it helps me with my Anderson Cooper problem. I'm sorry. I don't mean to pick up yeah. Anderson Cooper. Problem. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. Does it? Um, because yeah. you're all everything you said is actually quite beautiful and and inarguably true in my view. Yeah. But in those moments when I'm like thinking about you know my career, which is also real, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the in the Buddhist Buddhists kind of talk about things in the, the relative world, right? And the ultimate. So the ultimate truth is what you just described. And the relative truth is the kind of day-to-day reality we live. Um, On a relative term, like there are, you know, there are lots of people who sell more books than me. There are lots of people who have more popular podcasts than me. So what do – and there may be people – there are meditation teachers out there who you maybe have some lurking envy for. So how do – how how does it really make you feel better in a relative sense when you think about the ultimate in those moments? Or maybe it doesn't. Maybe the point is to just jar you out of relativity and more toward the ultimate. I think it's that. Yeah. And I think it, it doesn't work all the time. You know? <laughs> okay, okay, that's <laughs> like, useful. It's just the times, uh, you know, when I can adequately, when I have enough space and I can back out of that. When you're mindful. Feeling. Yeah. Yeah, which is not all the time. Well, you just, no, I mean, of course, it's not for, it, it can't be. Um, mm-hmm. The... When you talked about before quite eloquently about the illusion of separation, it just reminded me, and I don't know if this is going to make any sense, but I it just flashed back to my last meditation retreat. And I remember I had this moment, I was like standing up outside in one of those moments, like you get five or six days in and you're not embarrassed to stand outside with your eyes closed for, or even open for a long time, uh, just not doing anything, which is kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember thinking... I don't know what the exact word was, but something about the world is flowing through me. Like all the sounds and sights and even the food I eat and everything is just coming through. And like I am like a sieve. Mm, it's beautiful. But does that jive with what you were talking about in your view? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And just that it's um, it feels sometimes and people even who don't meditate have said that they've had these kinds of experiences. And I'm sure we all have sometimes. But it feels um, feels very true. Like yeah. it's, it's when you when you feel it, you feel like yes, this is always true. It just it's uh, it, you know you get clouded again, and, mm-hmm. and those two things happen constantly. 
And so you find that all of this, to bring it back to the nitty-gritty of college life or being in your 20s, you find that th- that these kids you're working with can touch this and it can be useful for them when dealing with, say, FOMO or, or, or trouble with their personal brand? Yeah. So there's, again, there's like, there are different levels. So just having people pause and, and like, take a break, um, anyone can do that. And that's a different, that's like an entry point sure. to the problem. And by the way, good enough if that's all that ever happens. Exactly. They think this, you know, five minutes a day, amazing. Great. Five, one minute. One minute, exactly. So, um, so yes, there's definitely different levels at, of access. But I think a lot of the people that come to our meditations, my, a lot of my students are, um, like I was, really looking for something that is talking about the nature of reality. So even though, yes, these, uh, these students are open, one, thing, one question we get inevitably within the first couple of weeks every single year in our meditation groups and classes is, what is the point of this? Mm-hmm. Like, why, what is the ultimate point of How this? How do you answer that? I answer it because I think there is an answer, which is um, to ease suffering and not just your suffering and not just my suffering, but all the suffering of the whole world, but also you're in my suffering. Yeah. Um, and that's what the Buddha said. That's what we're saying. And that is really the point. It's not about um, relaxing or doing better on your grade, you know, your GPA. It's really about um, transforming suffering. And so, uh, and I think that that, tends to satisfy. I've been to classes where the, the teacher kind of backed away from that, being like, you shouldn't worry about a point. It's all in the journey. And I always just felt like that's not a fair. You yeah. know, people need to have something to hold on to. I struggle with that, too. The, the sort of the, the I know that you're supposed to talk about it as being goalless, you know, because it can set up striving. But I also think that, uh, you know, one of the shining and aspirational propositions of mindfulness practice is that the the qualities we want the mental qualities we want like focus uh compassion self-awareness mindfulness um these are trainable skills Mm -hmm. and so actually so that's a goal Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean you have to get to a certain point by tomorrow it just means that you can get marginally better over time and that is a goal it is also a goal i describe it as being less of a jerk to yourself and others. I usually use a word that starts with A and ends with E, but I can't on this podcast because the people behind that glass over there tell me I can't. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I, I mean, that's one other way to say it. it's a little bit flippant. But, I mean, I think it's another – it's kind of a loose translation of what the Buddha said when he said uh, life is suffering. Totally. Totally. Yeah, I think that's really right. And in depending on who you're talking to, I would say, like, to me, really where this all comes back to is just – um, like a greater love in the world and like love for ourselves and love for others and living with like that kind of awakeness to me, awakeness and love just kind of feel the same way. Um, and, and of course it's not like measurable and the striving is, can be a problem after a certain period of time, but to get in, out the gate, I think it's just fair to talk about these, these skills, these goals, these pieces that, um, uh, we have research that says yeah. we can get there. And it's not super craven. It's not like, hey, do this, you'll make $100,000. Right. Um, right. Uh, so let's just talk about some of the other issues that you talk about in your book and ways that meditation can help. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about social media addiction. What about issues about relationships and sex? Yeah. Uh, I heard uh, – no, I read an article with like a very a prominent Buddhist teacher that I really respect. But it said something along the lines of um, I don't think – 
you know, I don't think it's a good idea for Buddhist teachers to really talk about sex or something along those lines. And I remember just thinking like, why? I mean, maybe there was a longer story behind that. But I think it's really important, especially for young people, because it is on their minds, relationships and sex. We have the most popular program we've ever held at NYU has not been like a, a major speaker um, actually, Sebene Selassie was our, our speaker, who's wonderful. Former uh, guest on this podcast. An amazing person. Uh, amazing human being, no <laughs> question about it. And she came to talk to NYU, and it wasn't just her name, even though she's wonderful. It was a topic called Mindful Sex. Hmm. Most popular program we've ever had at NYU. Wow. We had people crowding the hallways wow. to get in, every corner of the room. So people, every all young people are curious and most adults are curious of like, if this practice is real, if I'm really going to incorporate this in my life, what can I, how can I bring these practices into my relationships and my sex life and what does that mean? And so there's a whole range of what, how to do that kind of stuff, you know, acting with like ethics is just the beginning. But I think also really you know, it's like the more you know yourself and you know your own triggers, then the more that you can really be there for someone else. And it's a similar practice of really learning how to take in a full person who's in front of you, who is not just a projection of what you want them to be, and learning to be continually come back over and over again to who this real person is in front of you when you're talking about relationships uh, in any way. So I what, think what, what are some of the sorry I didn't mean to interrupt you but sure. what are the, some of the practices you recommend in your book as it pertains to relationships? Yes, so I think a lot of it is um, is kind of like the same way that you t- we talk about it in meditation, where you come back to your breath over and over again, or you come back to a strong emotion over and over again. Uh, the practice is to if you're in a conversation with someone, or unless it's particularly a tension filled conversation, a fight. To actually keep practicing feeling your own feelings and then also being there with the person and continuing to um, realize what's yours and what's really happening in real time. Mm. And that is a hard practice, but I think one worth trying. And I use a lot of examples of times I've failed (laughs) miserably with my husband or, you know, had these fights escalate into really bad places because I was just saying to him, like, you know, one of the major things that have has plagued m- m- us and my relationships has been like my feelings of jealousy. And so I would say like, you thought that, you know, I know that you think this person is prettier than me or whatever it is, like over and over again. That's and, painful for you. Whew, it's very painful. And that's yeah. talk about being lost inside of a hole. Like yeah. That is a place I get lost in that hole. Yeah, I get it. And then he is, you know, sitting there being like, you're not seeing me. You're not hearing me. I'm like, I'm talking to a wall here. Is he a meditator too? Um, since we met, I've, we've done meditation together. He's a naturally kind of spiritual person, but okay. that's not his main thing. But so you, so his, but his response sounded like, as the kids say, like a, something a woke person would say. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, he has his own things. But in these situations, I think he is able to be like, you're not you're not interacting with me and I feel really bad and this is really upsetting to me. Yeah. And it's and some it's very hard to pull yourself out and to be like, you know, because it's almost like two projects. The project of working with yourself and the the pain that you have from in my case, like from childhood being one in a big family and not getting enough attention mm-hmm. and just being like, Oh, poor baby, like you have a lot of pain here. 
And then there's this other person in the room and that to, to really see the differences between you is a it's a hard practice, but I think a really powerful one. So do you teach mostly straight up mindfulness? In other words, look at your breath, but then when you get distracted, start again. And then that way you build up kind of a self-awareness. Uh, you see that you're having this nonstop conversation with yourself and that it owns you less. Uh, you teach that, but do you also teach sort of loving kindness where you, you know, systematically sending good vibes to people? Yes. You do both. Mm-hmm. I, and also ones, uh, I include an entire like section in the book about a RAIN practice. I don't know if you know yes. about that one. It's yes, like recognizing, accepting, inquiring, and nourishing, which is my favorite word for the end part. So it's like a way of working with very powerful emotions. And I'm, I, I teach that a lot to students because it's young people are dealing with powerful emotions constantly and don't often have a lot of mechanisms of dealing with it. And so the breath practice is important just to develop a sense of focus. But I think oftentimes that that's really where they need to be at is really processing powerful emotions. So you 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 mentioned rain and you spelled it out, but some of many of the listeners may not actually know what it is. I think it's actually extremely useful. Can you just walk it, walk us through it step by step and how we would do it ourselves? Sure. So the R for rain is for recognize. So the, the, the predicate here is you're sitting there either in real life or on the meditation cushion, and you're ambushed by a very strong emotion. Yes. Okay, so then you do rain. Exactly. So you're lost in it. You're feeling, let's let's use jealousy as an example. Yeah. You know, you're completely lost in it, and you have this narrative in your mind, and you say, okay, I'm going to actually sit and practice instead. So the first thing you do is you say, like, you recognize, okay, I'm feeling jealous. Like, this really hurts. And underneath the jealousy is just this feeling of, like, not feeling um, good about myself, yeah. feeling really bad about myself. And just naming it sometimes is huge because one of my teachers, Jeff Roth, one time said that between the ages of, um, you know, birth and 30, anytime he felt an, a strong emotion that was like between his head and his knees, he just would register it as hungry and would just eat, you know. And I think a lot of us have that feeling. Yes. You yeah, skip that's why I'm laughing. <laughs> you skip right over really naming what you're feeling. Yeah. And so first is that recognition. Then you go into the A for rain, which is allowing or accepting. And that's the kind of um, uh, uh, you try and bring into your body. You're just, I'm not going to fight this. This is happening. This is really happening. But that doesn't mean passivity. No, because we're working with it, right? And so, and and it's just acknowledging the truth. It's happening. It's, so it's, you could have been trying to fight it for a while, and that just causes more suffering on top of the original pain. So it's that sense of being like, all right, we're, we're working with it. It's happening. I'm going to stop fighting this thing and just um, feel it in the body. So, yes, I feel jealousy. That's what I feel. I'm going to just relax, take a few breaths, really feel it. Where do I feel it in the body? This is the inquiry. And then you move into the eye, the yeah. inquiry. So then you start really noticing, like, where do I feel it in the body? What's happening? I'm, my shoulders are rising. There's a, a lot of tension in the chest. There's a feeling in the stomach. I feel like, um, you know, like I'm disappearing into a black hole, whatever it is that you're you're really noticing, feeling, naming it to yourself. And then as you have a little more space and sometimes you can just you just do recognize, accept, recognize, accept if you only have a short period of time. And that can be huge. If you have a little bit of time and space, you can ask yourself this question. What's underneath this? You know, what does if if I was going to ask this jealousy, you know, a question like where do you come from? What do you want to teach me? What do you want to tell me? 
it's that kind of gentle inquiry. And you may get an answer, you may not get an answer, but it's just very soft and asking those questions and feeling it in the body, asking where it is in the body. And then um, for N, so there's two different uh, ways that you can go. So one way is saying N is for non-identifying. So that's kind of continually letting go of whatever it is that you're working with. I find that for me personally, and also oftentimes for my students, that can look a little like pushing it away. Mm. So I try and stick with the other word for N, which is what my uh, what Tara Brack uses, which is called for nourish. And rather than any kind of sense of like, I'm going to push this away because it's there, you feel it, you know, you've been gently working with it. And then you can ask yourself this question, what can I do for myself right now? What can be healing? What can I like soften for myself? How can I nourish myself at that moment? And it couldn't just be sit- sitting there and breathing. It could c- get a glass of water, take some space. And uh, and that's b- basically the practice. And you find that the kids you work with embrace this are able to operationalize it? Yes. Yes. And I use it specifically. I break down three um, powerful emotions in the book, anxiety and fear, uh, anger and desire, which I think gets doesn't get enough play either in Buddhist circles um, and how to work with those three emotions. Um, would you say more about desire and how it doesn't get enough play? Yes. So I think there's I mean, there's a very common misunderstanding about Buddhism that Basically, you become a Buddhist so that you don't have any more desires or that desire is the root of all pain and and suffering. To some degree, I think that that clinging and grasping, yes. But I think there's a difference between the natural human feeling of desire and opening to that desire. Mark Epstein wrote this beautiful book about opening to desire as as an emotion um, that is is not it's a great book it's a great book and i think it's it, it its premise is that um desire is an incredibly powerful beautiful emotion that um doesn't isn't necessarily about suffering uh, if we can really feel it before it turns into just the grasping or if we can back out of the grasping and just feel desire as like a wave that can wash over you and I, for years, was just so deeply ashamed of all desires. I thought they were just like so ugly and so gross. And the way that you're supposed to go around in the world is to just really be like to hide everything that you want or desire and to just wearing only loincloth right? <laughs> or be above it all. Yeah, to yeah. be above it all. And I think that that is um, dangerous and painful and. Um, and was really painful. It was really painful for me, and so I've kind of come full circle on desire. And Mark Epstein talks about this about the connection between anxiety and desire, because so often the things that we're fr- afraid of and we live in fear all the time, it's actually because we really want something, mm. and it's easier to live on the fear side than it is to just acknowledge how badly we want something. Um, you, we we talked about um, technology. For a while, but I want to come back to it because I realized um, I had circled on this page in front of me an article that you forwarded along that I, of course, didn't read. But um, <laughs> I, I, the the headline is really compelling, and I want to hear your take on it. Uh, it's from the Atlantic. Have smartphones destroyed a generation? Yeah. What's your take? The article is very is somewhat depressing, very depressing. Um, and she cites she's been doing this research for years. This professor who wrote the article and 
talks really about how this generation, this younger generation that she calls the iGen generation, is uh, having what she calls the worst mental health crisis in, you know, decades and decades, um, which is all about loneliness and isolation that smartphones have accelerated. So I think it's hard to argue with that. Um, Is it the phone or the social media apps on the phone? She she actually kind of conflates the two um, in many ways, but I think it's um, it's primarily social media. I think that's where the majority of young people are spending their time. But there's also, I guess, games and emails and stuff. But I think it's mostly social media um, and just consuming news in general. But but I don't know. I I don't know. I'm I. I, I don't want to be too pessimistic because, again, like this is the world we live in. And so I think there's a lot of possibilities and there's a lot of interest. Like, I think this really is the meditation generation. And and they and we just have to build in more tools and more availability for young people to access these things to counter some of the stuff of the smartphones. Um, jumping around uh, a little bit, but there's been so much talk, I think. Um, justifiably so, about rape culture on campus, sexual harassment, sexual assault. Um, Do you think that mindfulness practice has a useful role to play uh, in terms of mitigating this issue, mitigating this problem? Yes, I do. Um, I think where the place where I see it the most, um, where it could be so important and so beneficial is is in this, this area of talking about sex and desire. Um, trying to uh, allow people to own their sexual um, energy and their their uncomfortable feelings before it gets, you know, completely doused in alcohol and then mm. horrible situations happen. That mm. doesn't take away from people's agency and the importance of educating people about consent. And we do that to, to the, the nth degree at NYU. We have mandatory consent workshops and things of that kind. But I think until you start to really ask people, and I say it's primarily young men um, who are the um, perpetrators of these of these crimes, but though not exclusively, but primarily, um, unless you start to really teach young men, I think, how to sit with this incredible place of discomfort, these incredibly strong feelings, the feelings that come when one is rejected, um, or when, you know, you you feel you're sitting with shame and a lot of the underlying psychological pieces that um, go into what rape culture becomes, I think we're continually going to get a problem from just focusing on punishment and consent. Now, I think those things are important or accountability and consent. I don't want to say that I don't think those things are important, but I think we're missing a piece here. It's really interesting. And bo- both of us have sons. You have a one-year-old, I have a almost three-year-old, and you have another son on the way. Right. So this is important for our boys to learn. Right, right. And coupled with, of course, understanding about, like, respect and women and things like that. But I think it go. I just think it goes deeper than that. And this isn't just for college kids. I mean, right. we're sitting here in the middle of uh, a massive uh, crisis of uh, sexual harassment and assault in the in the workplace. And the Senate, and yes, <laughs> the, of course, right? Uh, every pretty much everywhere. So it really does seem like men need to learn how, as you said before, to 
understand the this sort of desire and all of the attendant pathologies coursing through our veins and be able to sit with it mindfully so that we're not controlled by it and as you say, dousing an alcohol and do something stupid or even sans alcohol just doing something stupid right. because we're just being yanked around by all the stuff that's happening beneath the surface in our own minds. Right. And I see it constantly at NYU in these, the majority, I would say the vast majority of cases that I'm actually on a, a, a sexual assault appeals committee at NYU. And I would say the vast majority of cases we see there are gray area cases where like you just feel that like, you know, a lot of people did a lot of things not smart in these situations and you have to hold someone accountable or not hold them accountable. But you want to just turn back time and catch them before and just say like, you know, there's got to be a better way be- before you get to this point where you're in this murky territory. But, you know, mindfulness is not a silver bullet. So, of course not. Um, you know, I mean, I've only, I'm, I'm, I'm a piker. I'm new to the thing. I'm only about nine years, but I still, vis-a-vis, say, Oreos, you know, my desire can still overtake me and get me to do really stupid things. And so I don't know that if you teach mindfulness to a bunch of young boys that by the time they hit puberty at 13, 14, 15 and on, that they're going to be able to not do stupid stuff. Totally, but it may just reduce the odds. That's the hope. Yeah, yeah just like just like the you know consent workshops, maybe they might help. Just like you know, if you just get enough of the right messages um, and tools and tools, exactly, um, then we we might as well try. I mean, we we can't change the patriarchy overnight, but I think there's <laughs> there's some possibilities. Yeah, but in some recent weeks, we're seeing a pretty big. I hope it stays. in patriarchy, yeah. I hope it yeah. sticks. I mean, this is what my wife and I are basically talking about this exclusively at home. This yeah. This is like all we talk about. Yeah. We talk about a lot in relationship to your son or just in general? No, because she uh, is just on fire about this issue of sexual harassment in the workplace. And, yeah. And it's just an enormously important cultural moment. It really is. It really is. Yeah, we're talking about it in my home all the time, too. I'm sure that's it's really common right now. And I'm really hopeful um, but also, who knows? Yeah, well, that's 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 exactly the way I feel. Yeah. Let's do some plugging. Tell us, you know, <laughs> give, give us the name of the book again. Where can we get it? Where else can we, if we want to learn about you, anywhere, social media, your website, just give, give, it a, give us Thank everything. you. Sure. So the book is called What Now? Meditation for Your 20s and Beyond. And it's really not just for people in their 20s. It's really for a, a lot of moments of transition that, mm-hmm. we're, that we're facing at all different times in our life. You can order it from Amazon or wherever you buy your books. Um, you can find out more. I teach every single week at Mindful in New York City in the in the village. M-N-D-F-L, operate, owned and operated by Lodro Rinsler, former guest on the show as well and a friend yes, of mine. Yes, wonderful Great person. Yes. yes, wonderful place, wonderful person. Um, and so I would love to see you in my classes if you're in the New York area. And They have three outposts, so you're, you're teaching at the Greenwich Village one? Correct, okay. yes. And then uh, and then you can find out more about other kind of events and programs and places I'm teaching at yaelshy.com. Y-A-E-L-S-H-Y.com. Correct. You've been great. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. We we covered a lot of ground. I learned a lot. (laughs) So did I. Thank you. Bravo. Thank you. 
Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.